everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Nothing Major on Woroni Radio. I am Kate Armstrong. And I am Bella Hales Bradley. How are you today? Gotta say, Bella, not too bad, not too bad. The sun is shining, the vibes are immaculate, and hopefully, just hopefully, this is one of our last shows on Zoom. Ah, I cannot wait. Imagine how crisp our voice is going to be when it's not being filtered through like three layers of Zoom recording. And then on top of that, the hellscape that is ResNet. <laughs> I know. I can't wait to have it not sound like we're three feet underwater or three feet away from the mic. Yeah. So without further ado, welcome to Nothing Major. If you haven't already gathered, I'm one half of the show and Kate is the other. We're both students at the ANU in Canberra in the first years of our degrees, and we're both majoring in gender, sexuality, and culture studies. This show serves as a discussion of social issues inspired by the content of our common major. We aim to make its theory and content accessible and digestible for you, an everyday audience. Be sure to find us on our Facebook page at Nothing Major Aroni, where you can find the link to our Spotify and other ways to interact with the show. We're also still working on Instagram page, which will be up and running once we're allowed back in the studio. Speaking of when we're allowed back in the studio, you, our lovely listeners, will be able to find us here live at Waroni Radio, 11am on a Friday. Ah, that's so exciting. Before we get too deep into today's show, get excited. Today's show is a long one. It's a good one. It's in-depth. It's fun. Get excited. We'd both like to say a huge thank you to all of you who have come and supported the show in the last week. We're so sorry for bombarding all of our Facebook friends, <laughs> but we're so proud to announce that our Facebook page has grown from two followers to over a hundred. Not that we've been checking like religiously or anything. We've been yep. playing it like super <laughs> cool. Just checking our Facebook page like a regular non-obsessed amount, obviously. Yep. Definitely not like a hundred plus times a day or <laughs> anything like that. Anyway, thank you so much for all the wonderful feedback and support you guys have given us. Now, even though the majority of you are family and friends who don't have a choice but to support us in this (laughs) wonderful endeavour of ours, your support and high praise, might I add, of the show's first episode is so encouraging. So we thank you. A lot. We thank you a lot if we haven't already said. We've already (laughs) said. But we we thank you a lot. It means the world. We're really surprised with how many people that got involved. Who would have thought that people actually engage with ideas of gender studies, let alone when we put ideas of gender studies in the census? Not me. I, I wouldn't have thought. <laughs> Speaking of engagement, we got with last week's show. Bella, did we manage to get any feedback or additional views on the discussion of the census? Hell yeah, we did. The Google form was absolutely rocking. I think the main and most encouraging thing was that almost all of you guys agreed that there's definitely a current problem with the census. Which is glad the problem. Cheers. Glad our problems with the census and its content. We're just going to go over it. As well as all the people responsible for its making and distribution were not ill received. Anything in particular stand out to you, Kate? Look, there was this one comment that I found particularly interesting from one of our listeners, and it questioned the hesitance to put in additional questions on gender and sexuality into the census which would secure funding for those marginalised communities, as we know. The question, it questioned whether or not doing this, excluding these questions, was indicative that people didn't want funding going to these communities. Hmm. I think 
the skeptic in me wants to hop on about how there are definitely people that will actively stop funding reaching from the reaching the communities that need it. Mm-hmm. I'd love to scream that the lizards in Parliament House are plotting against <laughs> us, but alas, we have no evidence to prove that other than a couple of MPs looking unnervingly reptilian. <laughs> I think, and you'll agree, that the crux of the issue lies with Australia's big, we are loving and accepting of everyone spiel that most often doesn't feel very present in the real world, at least in actuality, not to a lot of marginalised communities. In reality, and we saw this really clearly in the census, the Australian Bureau of Statistics had a very clear understanding of the terms of sex and gender and an understanding of what was needed in the census. And then... The lizards didn't use it. The lizards (laughs) decided that our little lizard Australian society was going to be too offended to deal with. They decided that we were going to be too offended, which isn't very progressive at all. (laughs) The lizards! I really, the motif is there. I stuck with it. I shouldn't have. I'm sorry. We're not lizards. It's just certain people. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, for sure. The most interesting part of the question, though, was how can we help? And I think it would be a really interesting thing to discuss because we didn't address it in last week's show. We pointed out the issue, but we didn't say what to do to change. So, Bells, what do you reckon? Not going to lie, how can we help is a big question to ask. And I know from personal experience, and Kate probably does as well, it plagues a lot of activism and cultural studies. It's all well and good to harp on about issues and write about how terrible and unjust the systems are. But a lot of the time, this just isn't recognised in the way that a lot of more vocal or larger movements of activism are. We should stage a census protest. Don't burn the bras, burn the census! I I don't think we should burn the census. I think that's a fine for that. I mean, like, technically, you can do it online. So I reckon it'd be fine. Oh my god. If you didn't burn your census and you had a non-arson related issue with it, I actually think talking about something you have an issue with can make a big difference. We're not here to shit on the census. Sure, I don't think talking about it can change the world, but getting the message out there can only do good. I think there's merit in talking about it with people outside your echo chamber of political activism, like your tutors, your MPs. Absolutely. Look, I don't know if that's the answer our lovely listener was looking for but there really isn't one answer to that question that being said the fact is that these issues do continue to plague our society so remember that activism isn't dead and there's always something you can say or even do even if it's small the key takeaway is that you don't just share that information with people who agree with you. You've got to talk to people outside of your group, your political bubble, and debate and discuss those ideas. And I think the key here is we have to do it respectfully. It's yeah. a good time to point out that these are our personal opinions. But with that being said, I think that we've learned that you gain the most from respectfully debating and discussing these ideas. Being respectful and receptive to another argument helps you shape your own. Yeah, simply arguing about things is about as useful as talking to a brick wall. Being there, done that, doesn't work. You've talked to a brick wall? What are you arguing about? Different phase of my life, Bella, please. (laughs) Look, you've got to listen to both sides of the argument. Even if you know you're right, you need to be able to shape a well-rounded viewpoint so that you Mm -hmm. can debate your side with a holistic idea of the topic. And then you'll win. Don't worry. Look, (laughs) 
thank you once again to our viewer who posed the question. Remember, you guys can all contribute to the show by posting questions, reviews, comments, and ideas on the Google form, which you can find on our Facebook page. Anyway, onwards. This isn't necessarily a content warning, but today's discussion will rely us using terms like woman, man, lesbian, and others. Where suited, these terms are not situated within their traditional binary, and we're referencing individuals who may align within or outside of these structures, i.e., when I say women, it encompasses all women and women-aligned individuals, anyone within which a traditional woman's experience might resonate with or generate an understanding of specific issues affecting women. It's important that we say that now and not every time we mention the term, because if anything, stressing and over-inclusion can sometimes move full circle into exclusion or segregation. In terms of actual content warnings, we will be discussing sex in a very, in very loose, non-graphic terms, as well as mentions of domestic violence. All right, on to this week's content, Kate? Look, funnily enough, I actually think that the question from our viewer perfectly ties into today's discussion. So basically, once again, issues don't go away. But this time, we're looking at the second wave of feminism, don't worry, not in a broad history. Oh my God, I did it in year nine already. Please stop hopping on about it since. Oh no, we're examining a conundrum <laughs> that emerged in the second wave and we haven't been able to shake. What? A conundrum? <laughs> what? I, th- this is such a fun show topic. I know, indeed, Bella. The second wave feminist questioned it first and now we're putting it in a radio show and asking it for all of you. So can we, as feminists, participate in sex or relationships with men if they are in essence benefiting from or perpetuating the structures that we are fighting against good gosh that's such a big question (laughs) I think the essence of it is we're looking at if our sexual orientations govern or have governed or continue to govern our activism and our lives are we somehow forgoing our morals or our feminism when we fraternize with the enemy like men (laughs) in order to unpack this big awful existential dread question we need to do three things what's the first thing kate all right the first thing is unfortunately a tiny history lesson on the waves of feminism now this is super important because we need to be able to situate the second wave not only in time and history but also in relation to the other waves of feminism as a whole. We don't expect you all to have done gender studies like us. Mm -hmm. Um, So we just want to do a tiny recap. We promise it'll be brief-ish. Yes. And then we want to look at how the second wave feminists looked at this question. We'll be introducing some theory, some terms, and like the tiniest bit more history, but (laughs) then we might criticise it a bit. Not sure. And finally, Kate? Well, of course, to keep it topical, keep it fresh, keep it spicy, we want As to look is at the point of the show. Spicy yep. is the point. <laughs> we want to look at how we might answer this now, because we're, of course, existing in a different wave of feminism, where so much of our ideology, particularly about sex and relationships, is very removed from that of the second wave, but somehow so much more closely politicized and examined. Alrighty, well, what are we waiting for? Let's get into the history lesson. As most feminists, the politically aware, or just most people might know, feminism has been categorized into, depending on who you read or who you talk to, three or four waves. Can you get us started, Kate? 
of Cortex anvils. So the first wave occurred in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, and it was mainly focused on suffrage and overturning legal obstacles to equality, like voting and property rights. It's best characterized by women's fight for the right to vote. So this fight was mostly fought by middle to upper class women in the West who possessed the social and political mobility to challenge the status quo. On that note, Kate, were you aware that as a gender studies student, I'm sure you're aware, that <laughs> Australia was the first country to give women the right to vote and stand for parliament in 1902? Woo! Go off Australia! <laughs> we use women in a very close definition of the term here, as it was almost exclusively white unmarried women that were given this privilege. And again, it was a whole 60 years later that the Commonwealth Electoral Act received assent, which granted all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people the option to enrol and vote in federal elections. Get that? It wasn't compulsory. Let's go off Australia. Oh, and of course, we also have to remember that it wasn't until 1967 that Indigenous peoples were formally recognised as Australian citizens. Yeah, so that's really important to note when we talk about the first wave. The second wave, the one of focus today, which we'll unpack more broadly as we go along in the show, is best known for broadening the equality debate to include a wider range of issues like sexuality, family, workplace, reproductive rights, and other de facto non-legal inequalities. It also drew attention to issues of domestic violence. Women's shelters were autonomously established in this wave, and massive changes in custody law and divorce law were brought about. Thank you to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Rest in peace, Ruthie. Even though I disagree on you a lot of things, this we have to be appreciative of. What we really want you to understand about the second wave, which is particularly important to what we're unpacking today, is that women of the second wave created this entirely autonomous movement that brought out issues that were previously just not spoken about. We will unpack this further throughout the show, but the main point we're making is that they look they took these really personal issues and forced them into the political sphere. And this reformation of what we consider personal and political carried through into the next wave of feminism. All right, so the third wave kind of sits about from the late 1990s and continued until the rise of the fourth wave in the 2010s. And again, it sought to reclaim ideas of sex and gender and really revolutionize feminist media. And so we get to the present day. Depending on who you talk to, either fourth wave feminism or this big notion of post-feminism emerges in the early 2010s. Basically, both of these, although very different, act as a reaction to feminism being now very ideological. Because at least in the West, most of the fundamental legal obstacles to equality have been supposedly, and dare I say this with a grain of salt, achieved. Yeah, once again, achieved is a big fan inverted commas. Yeah. Okay, don't let, don't let me get into that now. We're, Bella, saving Bella. That another, we're saving that for another episode. Both <laughs> post-feminism and fourth-wave feminism, whichever one you cater to, explore the way in which feminism and feminist activism has moved into these very new online and social spheres, where not only is there heaps of new information, but there's also dissent abound. Yes, amazing. Did you get all of that, Bella? Uh, it's a podcast. Maybe I was tuned out for a little bit. Can we go over it? <laughs> okay. Okay. To recap, first wave, right to vote. Second wave, reclaiming sex, ideas of identity, and criticizing cultural structures. Third wave, reimagining the, these ideas of cultural structures. And fourth wave, have we achieved feminism or not? And where do we go from here? 
Oh my gosh, amazing. Feeling educated, feeling hot, feeling spicy. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time criticizing these wave ideas after spending so much of yours in our lives explaining them, but we just <laughs> want to stress that this history is an entirely Western perspective, although these waves were pretty global. The strict institutions that are gender, heterosexuality, and monogamy have long been contested or forgotten in other culture, cultures, and it's really important to recognize that. So Bella, we come back to the question of today's show, and I'm going to repeat it because it's big and meaningful and took us ages to write correctly. So can we, as feminists, participate in sex or relationships with men who are in essence benefiting from the structures that we are fighting against? Right, well, even after the history lesson, you might still be thinking, ah, I've got no idea. What? <laughs> and that's chill. The question at hand is a pretty big one and it's been around, although in different forms, for a pretty long time. Right, Kate, I'm going to start answering it. Woo. I found this quote from American writer and trans woman, Andrea Longchu. It's from her 2019 essay, The Impossibility of Feminism. By the way, banging title. Phenomenal. The quote, the quote goes, the feminists of the late 60s and early 70s, remember the history lesson, this means our second wave feminists, by opening up the personal to the political critique, accidentally proved feminism impossible. Heterosexuality remained largely intact. Most feminists stayed with their boyfriends and kept having bad sex. <laughs> oh my gosh. Hmm. Wow. Won't you make some really big points in that quote? Where do we even start? Which one should we dive into? What? <laughs> All right, Kate, calm down. <laughs> Let's work chronologically. Long Chu makes two points that are going to help us understand our question. The first main takeaway from this quote is the idea that the second wave feminists, like we've mentioned, made the personal political, which is how we've even reached discussions and issues of sex and relationships nowadays. Yeah, it's so important to understand that without second wave feminists initiating discussions about things that we thought to be taboo, like sex and specifically how female pleasure is found, or ignored within relationships and please note we aren't saying that we this is saying, perfect now we aren't saying we found it now <laughs> yeah we're still looking we're looking hard <laughs> anyway without second wave feminists starting these discussions we wouldn't be having this discussion today yeah feminists of the second wave also coined a bunch of new terms one that's really important important in unpacking our question is the heterosexual hegemony I, sorry what what did you just say? <laughs> that was like, I, I heard alliteration. I didn't hear the words. I'm so confused. What does that mean? <laughs> okay, not gonna lie. I knew the basics of heterosexual hegemony, but I did Google it to get a more concise definition for this show. Right. Hegemony refers to the permeation of a way of life in, into every sphere of society, right? And it's a crucial mechanism by which those in power dominate. When you add heterosexual, i.e. relationships with one participant of each sex, we can understand that heterosexual hegemony refers to how heterosexual relationships are forced into society, how being straight becomes the status quo. All right, I think I get it. So boy-girl relationship is the default in society. Yep, mm -hmm. is that right? Okay, yes, cool, cool, cool. <laughs> All right, but how did this work in the second wave? 
Okay, well, in the second wave, what emerged was lesbian feminism. What's Woo! very interesting and important to note in terms of our question is that lesbian feminism formed a very distinct and ideologically separate sect of feminism as a whole at the time. What, how, why, who, swear, what, please keep going. <laughs> okay, basically, all the feminists were working really hard to achieve autonomy from very patriarchal or male-dominated societal structures. The lesbians posited that in terms of sexual relations, the best way to separate yourself from men is to not have sex with them. Simple. Okay, so let me get this straight. What was observed was the construction of a dichotomy and opposition between lesbian or non-heterosexual feminists versus heterosexual in feminism. Yes, exactly. Right on the money, Kate. And then that's where we get to Andrew Longchu's second point that she makes in the last sentence, which is most feminists stayed with their boyfriends and they kept having bad sex. What a phenomenal. It's brutal. (laughs) And it stuck with me. The criticism that Longchu posits is that the second wave feminists created some really telling irony. I think this irony is definitely evident here as it brings up the question of how the patriarchy has pitted us against each other and how second wave feminists reinforce the heterosexual hegemony. Is that right? Did I use it right? Yes, of course. Go off. Okay, nice. So this angle of criticism towards the second wave feminists that Longchu introduces isn't the only of its kind. So alrighty, let's go. Part two. So on one hand, these heterosexual feminists were out there criticizing patriarchy. They were criticizing men, they were forging or reclaiming new avenues of female pleasure and like yada yada. But on the other hand, they stayed with their boyfriends. They stayed in entirely unfulfilling straight relationships. And that to an outsider seems entirely antithetical. There's also an irony here for lots of reasons. And Longchu is not the only person to criticize feminists of the era. As whilst there were social, they were social warriors, they were for the most part upper class, white, and decidedly straight. They were intent on liberating themselves from a select few social structures, but staunchly defended others whose abolition would greatly benefit women of different demographics. When we think of second feminism, second wave feminism, even lesbian feminism in the second wave, the women who appeared at the helm of this movement entirely had the privilege and the social mobility in reaching the helm at all. They were white, they were upper class, they were educated and employed. Simone de Beauvoir? Right. She was straight, white, rich. She had a famous academic husband that helped her produce the second sex. Though that isn't a criticism or, or a diss of the second sex. That is a crucial piece of feminist literature. Untouchable. <laughs> so true. All right. Um, 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 Jermaine Greer. She posited all these opinions that theoretically answer our question because she was a lesbian. White again. Also a bit problematic. Her book, The Female Eunuch, which is arguably her most famous piece of writing, enforces the gender binary in a very, dare I say it, transphobic way. She was literally Australia's second wave feminist icon, and she doesn't accept any form of an open definition of sex or gender, even though those around her at the time were positing these viewpoints anyway. Even when we think of Black feminism at the time, feminists like Audre Lorde served as really important members of the lesbian feminist movement, but we've disengaged with that whole sector of her work. She worked in civil rights and her work in feminism outside the specifically lesbian 
feminist movement aren't and weren't acknowledged because there wasn't considered an intersect between them mm-hmm. or and they weren't considered within the white feminist model or agenda. Yeah, and really quickly, there are no iconic or like publicly recognized Indigenous Australian feminists. They're definitely there and they were definitely present, but they're just not getting the praise that white women do. And Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks make up some of the only attributed Black feminists of the time as well. So we have to, we entirely have to consider how the second wave might not give us the best answer to our question because it's left out or segregated some really vital perspectives. Yet this sectoring doesn't only exclude people, it also divided women feminists or those identifying with women's experiences and issues and perpetuated this heterosexual hegemony, which was illuminated by the lesbian and queer feminists of the time. Yeah, queer feminists, particularly lesbian feminists, had this continuity of interests aligned with those of the cisgender heterosexual women feminists. And I think much like issues of race, the second wave totally ignored this. Um, Scholar Denise Thompson neatly summed that lesbians are not a different category of women, but part of a continuum of being female. Despite an obvious modern critique that can be said for the sex-based womanhood that Thompson references, the argument that she presents is still very much relevant today, wouldn't you say, Bells? Yeah, definitely. The perpetuation of a heterosexual hegemony was not something solely attributed to these feminists, but they definitely played a part, not necessarily consciously, because it's something that's so ingrained within society and culture. All right, so where are we in terms of our question? All right, we might have indulged a slight tangent, sincere apologies, (laughs) but the second wave struggled with the unconscionability of feminist feminist heterosexuality. Big word buff. The second wave struggled with the unconscionability of feminist heterosexuality, which is a notion coined by Professor Jane Gaines in 1995. However, the stagnancy of heteronormativity... The heterosexual hegemony! Yes, it outweighed the criticism that it was dealt, leaving it the work of feminists in later decades to unpack. Wait, Bells, on that note, what are we? Well, we're the feminists of the later decades. We get to unpack this. Oh yeah, and so we are brought to the third stage of our three-stage plan. Not sure if you guys are tracking or if it's been clear at all, But first, there was the history of feminism. Then the second wave got a little spicy, got a little bit problematic, and now we're here. Bells? This starts like the start. This sounds like the start of like a 2010s movie. It's like (laughs) freeze frame. We're on Zoom. You might be wondering how we got here. (laughs) Sorry. I love that. We're looking at this now from a modern perspective, not from the 2010 intro scene of a movie, we promise. (laughs) It's coming out next week. Nothing major, the film. Um, (laughs) From this modern perspective, um, and with this, we can suggest that maybe the second wave feminists got it wrong. The feminism that seeks to divide activism and academia into categories of womanhood and experiences is neither helpful nor is it intersectional. But alas, just like the feminists of the time that we just criticised, We are also white, we're educated, and we're privileged in so many ways. I think that where we differ is that we have the privilege of time and history, which means that we can look at these issues with a far more intersexual lens than our predecessors could. 
Yeah, there's most definitely a necessity for spaces where specific experiences can be shared. And Western feminism as a whole has a long path to travel in terms of the uplifting of marginalized voices and experiences. But the division of feminism into these specificities, like we saw in the second wave, is entirely unhelpful. Yes, this argument can be developed into one succinct-ish point. Every woman-aligned feminist, we would hope, shared the collective interest in the opposition of male supremacy. We just have to go about it differently. By definition, feminism takes as its political and philosophical project the comprehensive critique of male sexuality, its power and its privileges, and how that would work in society. Yeah, so under this conclusion, how do we operate within heterosexual relationships without undermining the cause? Oh my god. Finally, back to the question. Good oh, yeah, job. I'm going to answer it. <laughs> Not sure. I mean, debatable. Wait and see. On next week's show, when part D- B comes out. I'm kidding. That's Don't. not all, all we have time for today. You've stuck with us for like half an hour. We're actually going to answer the question. We promise. Yes. Okay. Indian writer Andita Chowdhury posited in her piece for feminism in India that a heterosexual relationship is essentially a contract of trust between a man and a woman. Within this setting, in a lot of cases, heterosexuality has emerged for a space for the has emerged as a space for the exercise of male power this is a super important statement an enormous body of feminist work regarding sexuality calls attention to gender inequality and crimes against women and women aligned individuals but this doesn't yet indicate what this doesn't yet indicate is the presence of any substantive or applicable progress being made towards a feminist rendition of sexuality and relations. Yeah, and despite all of this debate, contemporary first world feminist theory upon sexuality has confirmed that women do in fact desire men. No way, I don't believe it. (laughs) (laughs) And we're going to continue to do so, nonetheless in conjunction with a desire to be liberated from the social and individual constraints of things like the patriarchy that have grown upon us. In another of Professor Jane Gaines's essays, Feminist Heterosexuality and Its Politically Incorrect Pleasures. Once again, what is it with feminist academics and their absolutely banging titles? They really popped off. Like, I am impressed. Maybe mm-hmm. inspiration for gender studies blogs. <laughs> anyway, what I particularly found interesting about Gaines was her statement that women who can strategize for their own physical pleasure within relationships with men do so we have to recognize when answering our question that female desire and women's pleasure are alive as concepts even though seemingly more pressing struggles might currently preempt them yeah the feminists of the second wave gave us our social autonomy they taught us that we could do with or without men And what we see now is that this has coalesced in women's sexual exploration being much more prominent in sexual relationships, no matter with whom. All right, so to summarize, on a surface level, you might be thinking that the only way to answer our question is that if you're a feminist and attracted to men, you have to let go of one or the other. This is partly what the second wave of feminists got caught up in though. What we have to further understand, though, is that the construction of these two as mutually exclusive, like either feminism or men, just isn't an effective solution, both theoretically and practically. The necessity here is for dialogue and an exhalation of identity and principle, both within and around yourself, and to establish these with your partners as well. 
Yeah, there also needs to be an acceptance of the fact that it can be quite difficult for some women to reconcile their feminism with their heterosexuality completely. Yeah, but continuing to allow the standards within relationships to slip continues to allow men the privilege of ignoring their behaviour. So, engage with men that respect you. Engage with men that respect your boundaries and respect your principles, or just don't. Oh my god, that is such a good way to end it. Yeah, power ending. Anyway, did we answer the question? Our question, did we answer it? Let us know on the Google form and we'll talk about it next week. Otherwise, if you want to find out more about Nothing Major on Moroni, follow us at at Nothing Major Moroni on Facebook or find us on Spotify. And of course, as always, all research material we have used for today's show will be uploaded to our Facebook page for your viewing pleasure. Otherwise, if you'd like to get in touch with us, if you have an amazing idea or you want to participate on our show, don't be afraid to send us an email at radionothingmajor at gmail.com. That's radionothingmajor at gmail.com. No caps and no gaps. And that's all we have time for today. I'm Kate Armstrong. And I've been Bella Hales Bradley. Remember to stay safe, stay sexy. And honestly, if that's the last you wanted to hear from us, it's nothing major. Been listening to nothing major on Moroni Radio. See you next week.